The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Turn to the book of Ephesians. We are going to start our series uh, on the Trinity. So I'm going to read the passage, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to explain what we're doing, uh, because this might seem like a bit of an odd series to do. So here we are, we're going to look at chapter 1, book of Ephesians, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this word, it is an incredible paragraph to look at. God, would you give us the spirit so that we could understand what you're teaching us, and to know you as Father and Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, that is the foundation of all true happiness in this life, God. We pray that you would do this now because you're a gracious and good Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (coughs) Do you, when you hear the word Trinity, do you think of the word happiness? Um, That's not typically an association maybe that comes to mind, but when the Bible talks about our triune God... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Bible talks about a happy God. And so when we think about the word happiness or Trinity, happiness should be one of the words that comes to mind. And the reason that we are looking at this, this idea of the Trinity, this teaching of the Trinity from the Bible, is because we want to be happy Christians. Um, and part of the reasons, part of the reasons that we do uh, look at this, we're going to look at this doctrine is probably because it's just kind of like the family goods that comes with the territory of being a Christian. Uh, the first 300 years of the church were a lot of uh, debates and processing through and pastoral care and um, mission work and uh, deliberations about the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? I mean, we had. Um, major teaching going around that Jesus wasn't quite God. Jesus was kind of God, but kind of not. Um, the Holy Spirit wasn't a real person. He was just a force. So the first 300 years of the Christian church, um, the Trinity was majorly debated. It was a major issue. It was so major that, I don't know if you've heard of this guy named St. Nick. Can, I, can we bring up that slide, St. Nick? So here's St. Nick, right? There's a uh, literal photo of him. Um, St. Nick um, was so passionate about the doctrine of the Trinity that they held a council in Nicaea, a little town called Nicaea in 325. And there was a dude named Arius who was teaching that Jesus was adopted by God but was not God himself. And um, St. Nick um, socked him right in the face. <laughs> he was so passionate. Now, now St. Nick is the guy behind Santa. So if you're getting Santa Claus to punch you in the face, you know you're doing something wrong. You know? So... <laughs> so... Uh, so that's one, of the re- that's one of the positive reasons, you might say. Like, this is our family heritage as Christians. We want to know why the Trinity is so important. Um, on the negative side of things, can we bring up the next slide? The negative side of things, some research has been done recently to show that uh, the reality is that uh, Christians in America uh, don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, so we have the, the question, the statement, there is one true God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, 69% of Christians in a, in a 3,000, so they, they, they surveyed 3,000 people. 69% said they agreed. Over 10% said they didn't. 
and then, um, or I'm sorry, 20% said they disagreed, and then at, t at 11% were like, yeah, not so sure, right? So that statement, there's three God, there's one true God and three persons, that's like the core of the faith. And so Christians are a bit ambiguous on what they think about that. And then the Holy, the, the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. A lot of people who like Star Wars reading, answering this one, right? 56% agreed, 27% disagreed, 17% uh, not sure. And then the Holy Spirit is a divine uh, being, but is not equal to God the Father and Jesus. We had a lot of people who were not clear on this one either. So this is not to poke fun. The reason I put this up is to say, is not to say, look at all these Christians who don't know what they're talking about. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, this is something that I, I've, I've noticed and I've seen. We can take that slide down. That's Lifeway research if you guys want to look up more details on that. But the reason I bring it up is to say, this is not something that we're going to have in our church. We, we love who God has revealed himself to be. And it's not just because we're just going to be a bunch of theology nerds and push our glasses up our nose and read lots of big, thick books. That's not the point of being a Christian. We want to know who God is and what he's revealed himself to be. And so this is a picture of what, uh, this is a, a picture of the Trinity, but this is how we've conceptualized the Trinity. The God the Father, is, uh, God is one God who exists in three persons, right? Three distinct persons who are equally God. And that's when it begins to kind of like blow your logic, right? So that's why this is so hard, right? You have God who is the Father, who is the, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Father and the Son are not the same. But they are each distinct persons and they're all equally God. So we, that is an incredible reality that we could go through and talk about. But what I want us to do is I want to see this as a practical doctrine. This is a practical reality. That's why I start out by asking, do you associate the Trinity with happiness? Because the Trinity is the grounding of all true, lasting, good, and satisfying happiness. The Trinity is where we walk into a cathedral of resounding happiness and live in this echo chamber of the glory of God. And so that's what we're looking at Ephesians 1 this morning because we, we want to know the Trinity, right? But, I mean, we want these doctrines to be real practical. Like, we don't want them to be just kind of like ethereal. Like, I guess that's true, but I'm not sure if it really matters, you know? Like, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that's like, I'm not sure if it's true, if it doesn't matter. Like, uh, African swallow, like African swallows, they don't actually exist. It's a Monty Python reference if you guys didn't. <laughs> so we're going to do this series on the Trinity. And here's the, here's the, the four topics we're going to look at. Right, they kind of uh, they follow a basic basic trajectory. We're going to look at salvation tonight. We're going to look at Christian at the Christian life. We're going to look at community and mission. Um, this kind of covers like the whole sweep. I mean, we could talk about the Trinity in your marriage, the Trinity in singleness. We could talk about um, the Trinity in parenting, the Trinity in work. We could talk about all those things. But we're just going to look on these four things. And can we bring that slide back up? But we're because what I want us to see is that this is not just kind of like four random topics. <clears throat> this is how salvation, how we become a part of God's people. How we live life as God's people, as the Christian community. Um, Christian life, how do we live life with God? How do we live life with God together? And then how do we live life with God together on mission? Right. So there's a flow of this. Like, How do we become a part of God's people? How do we live as a, one of God's children? How do we live with other God's with all of God's children together, and how do we do God's work together, right? So that's, that's how we're picking these four topics. And so tonight, we are looking at salvation because this is the beginning topic of anything about what it means to be a Christian, <laughs> right? What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be saved. Saved from what and saved to what? So that's why we are looking at Ephesians 1, right? When we're, we're talking about the beginning of what it means to be a Christian and salvation, and it's not what we're going to be seeing here in this this passage. It's not primarily our idea. Salvation is God's idea. <laughs> it's not a prayer that you've prayed. It's not how you respond to God. It is not how much you know about God. Salvation is something that God has accomplished for us, and we're going to see in this passage how each person of the Trinity is grounding our happiness and God's salvation for us. So we're looking at Ephesians 1, 
And just to give you a little bit of some context here, kind of like what's going on or why this passage, uh, the church in Ephesus were just like us. They're a bunch of um, ragamuffin people, right? It's just an island of misfit toys of people with uh, marital problems and singleness issues and parenting problems. And they had job pro- they had problems with their employers. Uh, they had political dysfunction going on. Um, they also had demonic stuff going down. And they had uh, strife going on in their church. Thankfully, we don't have strife going on in our church. <laughs> but they had a lot of stuff going on. And when Paul, as a pastor, thinking about how to help them, he writes to them to help them and ground them in our triune God. And what does he do? Right out of the gate, he writes the longest sentence in the New Testament. <laughs> it's, it's broken up into lots of periods and commas here, but it's actually a sentence of 202 words in the Greek. It's the longest sentence in the New Testament. And I want to say that it might have been, it's one of the longest sentences in Greek literature. He just like, he just goes on and on and on. Like if you ever have like a friend that like can't stop talking, you're like, I, I want to say, <laughs> we, don't have, we don't know any of those people, promise we're not pointing fingers. If you have one of those friends, Paul is like that guy and he is so excited to help us see that our life, our salvation is grounded in not just a God in general, but a triune God. Who is he? What's he like? And so when he's talking about it, he is exuberant to help us not only see that God's a trinity, but that our happiness is grounded in this trinity. You guys with me? You guys digging? Okay. So here's what we're going to do. The main point of this passage is that we can be happy in our happy triune God. We can be happy in our happy triune God. Real simple. And so how is our triune God the grounding of our happiness. So the first thing we're going to look at, we're going to pick up in verse 3. And we're going to look at the Father's abundant heart. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, some of the, the problem with some of this passage is that it just seems so dense that it's just kind of like, you kind of like zone out, right? But I want, to, I want to draw your attention to this first point here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That word blessed, it just means happiness, right? And so what this means, well, you, if you could, you could translate this verse to mean, <laughs> happy is the God, of our Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has happily given us in Christ every spiritual happiness in the heavenly places. <laughs> but that's one way you could kind of tick that across. Isn't that incredible? Right out of the gate, what Paul does is he grounds us in this happy God. <laughs> like, I don't know what you think about when you think about God. But the first thing that Paul says is he's not just a God who's in general like a good guy. He is the father the first person of the Trinity, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not to say that the Father is God and Jesus isn't, right? We're going to see Jesus is God, but God the Father is happy. He is happy about doing what? What is he happy about? About blessing us in Jesus with everything in heaven. <laughs> he loves to give away, right? In a world where we are, are rife with disappointing dads and people who let us down and things that just don't go the way that we want them to. Paul starts us out the gate by saying, look, first thing you need to know, God the Father, he's happy. You realize that whatever we say is true about God is at the center of the universe. The universe revolves around God the Father who is happy. He designed the world to revolve around his happiness. And so Paul starts us out by saying he's happy and he has blessed us. He's made us happy in Jesus and given us everything to make us happy. He, this is not the guy that I think of as being God the Father. He is a, the heart of the Father is full of abundant joy. So pick up with me verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then down in verse 6. To the praise of his grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we have verse 4. He has chosen us. And why has he chosen us? To the praise of his glorious grace. 
right? This is something that speaks to, it, it kind of like summarizes in like a one line the history of the world, right? <laughs> um, things broke and God saves us. <laughs> like that's kind of like what's in the background, right? Things are broken, things are sinful, and we give our big, big fist right in God's face. It's in the background of the statement. But what Paul is drawing us is into this reality that exists before creation, where God says, I am going to save people to make them happy in me. And it's not a plan B, right? The fact that we need to be saved, the fact that we are broken and sinful and a wreck, like that's not kind of like God saying like, well, the first plan didn't work out, so I guess we'll come up with something else. God's first plan was to reveal how happy he was and how happy he is by designing the world in such a way that he saves people to make them happy in himself. Right, this is, this is not just kind of like something that God kind of had to throw together. Like when Adam and Eve bit into the apple, he was kind of like, oh, this wasn't in the game plan. <laughs> no, this is in the game plan. And God is big enough and gracious enough as a father to design a world where lots of horrible, sinful, bad things happen. And yet he still comes near to us to make us happy. And I want to draw it. This is one of the things I don't, so you guys know, I don't really drop like, here's what the Greek really means, right? Like I don't do that a lot because I don't think that our English, our English versions are just great. But one thing I want to draw out for you and helps us kind of ground, kind of click this picture into focus is here in verse four, it says, even as he chose us in him. That phrase where it says, he chose us in him, that, uh, that phrase is an indirect middle, right? Here's your grammar lesson for tonight. <laughs> it's an indirect middle. What is an indirect middle? An indirect middle is when, uh, when you might say, like, he kept back some of the money, right? He kept back, that's an indirect middle. That's where the verb is used. He kept back some of the money. And the reason he did it was for himself, right? If I, if I keep back some of the money, the implication is it's for me. And so when, it's, when Paul says, even as he chose us in him, he chose us for himself. Not because we're so great. <laughs> Not because we did something to get his attention. He saved us. It's, it's right here in the phrase. He saved us for his own glory to make his name look great. That's what Paul is saying here, right? The glory of God is the reason why God saves us. It's not because God is this philanthropist who loves going through the universe and kind of like dishing out the dough. He loves to make his name look great. And that's why Paul says he chose us in him. He chose us for himself to make God look great. You guys getting it? He, he is all about God looking great. God is the reason why God saves us. And it's not just that God did it and then he kind of moves on. If you look at verse five, God the Father, this happy Father who loves to save us for himself because he's a generous and abundant heart, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Right, he does not just save us and kind of make us citizens with a passport. He saves us and gives us his last name. God the Father predestines us for adoption. He makes us his children, right? He does not just save us and kind of like put us in the bench seat or put us on the roster. He makes us sons of God. Now, part of the problem with this phrase is that we can hear this and be like, oh man, like here's Paul being like a male chauvinist all the time, right? It's like all about the guys and not about the ladies. Like what's the deal with that? So here's the deal what's going on with that phrase. He is not saying uh, men are better than women. What he's saying, he's pulling from this cultural dynamic. It still goes on. I mean, it doesn't do that. We don't do that much in America, but in the old world and in lots of other uh, parts of the world where the firstborn son basically gets all the goods and then everybody else is kind of like left to kind of make it up on their own. <laughs> like that's the way it works, right? That's why in the medieval, just so you know, like in the medieval times there are all these like crooked bishops um, it was because they were all like second and third sons that the dad had to find a job for them because all of his goods were going to the firstborn son. 
Because so like these guys weren't even Christians and they were getting put in these religious, anyhow, you guys don't care about that. (laughs) The firstborn son in the old, in the ancient world would get all, like he would get everything. Whatever the dad was, if he was a carpenter, he got the shop and all the tools and all the clients. And then the second and third sons worked for the older son, right? But this says that we are predestined for adoption as sons. And what that means is that men and women, rich or poor, you know, scandalous sinner, minor sinner, whatever you are, you have complete and first row seat access to God the Father. There is no divisions. There is no hand-me-down grace in the family of God. We get exact and specific and close and intimate fellowship with the Father. That is what God gives everybody. They are adopted to become sons. They, they are, we are made to be the recipients of full grace from God. And the good thing about God is that he's infinite. So he's got enough to give everybody for all eternity forever. Right? It seems like from this picture that God enjoys giving riches to many children. And he doesn't skimp on it. So Paul is starting us out by this picture of God the Father with an abundant heart, eager to bless us. And I wonder, as we think about our daily lives, if this picture of what Paul's laying out, this happy God, is that our functional life, functional thoughts about God the Father? Do we, do we live day to day with this functional thinking about God the Father. He loves me. He, he loves me. Or do we, do we question it? Do we, do we think he loves me today? But I did this really bad thing today, so he doesn't love me tomorrow. He loves me. He loves me not. Keep going back and forth. Does God the Father love me? Does he not? See, what Paul is saying here is, at the heart of the universe is a father with a heart that loves you infinite. He's a fountain of infinite love. We think of, we tend to think about God the Father. I don't know if you guys remember this scene um, from this class, from the old movie uh, Oliver Twist. Anybody actually ever seen that movie? Okay, so I actually, I've never actually seen the whole movie from beginning to end, but um, we, it, was a, it was a scene that made its, its way into the life of my family growing up. And so there's a scene where uh, it's all the or- orphan boys and they're all like getting their little like pots of porridge, right? And they each get one, one dip of porridge each. And they're all like famished. I mean, they're like, you know, like eight-year-old boys, like they eat like a rhino, you know? So like Oliver takes, gets, he gets a short straw and so he has to go up front, scared. Please, sir, can I have some more? And the response, what? <laughs> what? And the guy goes on, chases him around, and beats him, of course. You know? So it's not a great example. <laughs> In my house growing up, my dad didn't beat us. But every time we would ask for more, he would say, what? But we have this image in our head of God the Father being like, uh, like oh, we're annoying God by asking him for God, just help me make it through the day. God, help me. I don't know what to do with this job that I have. God, I don't know what to do with my family. God, I don't know what to do. God, help me. God, I don't know. And we think of God as being this skimpy God. The Father's heart is abundant to give us all that we need to provide for us, to care for us, to satisfy us. John Owen, who my oldest son is named after, He has this great quote where he says, um, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you. He goes on to say to have hard thoughts of God and to say the, the, the best way to serve Satan is to believe that God hates you. God does not hate you. The Father's heart is full of abundant grace to you, abundant love and affection And no matter what your week has been like, no matter what this year has been like, no matter what today has been like, the Father looks at you 
with infinite satisfied love. Which I think, one of the other ways I think, so this should, I think, I think one of the ways we can apply this in our responsive time this evening, maybe just to, just to come up and say, Father, thank you. Just to say, God, you are good and enough, and God, I love you. Just, so the, the practical application of this is to functionally live on a daily basis, experiencing the smile of God the Father upon you. Like, I think that would probably change our attitudes a little bit. Maybe be like more joyful and satisfied and happy and peculiar to our neighbors because we're not being run around by the news cycle or in fear of natural disasters. Happy that a good, a good father is caring for us. And then for the fathers, guys, I think one of the ways that this applies for us, do our, do our children experience us as a smiling dad? <laughs> because we reflect the father to our families, and then men here, we reflect the Father's smile in our church, right? Yeah, there's a lot of ways in which our kids do silly things. <laughs> but I've resolved, I don't, want my, I don't want my sons to hear no more out of my mouth than they hear yes. Because the Father in heaven has an infinite yes that he's given us to provide for us, to care for us, to protect us, I want us to experience this. And I want our kids to experience this too. So let's pick up in verse 7. We're going to look at the son's victorious sacrifice. So we've looked at the father. So we see God the father, right? An abundant heart. The son's victorious sacrifice. So picking up in verse 7, I'm going to read 7 through 10. In him, that's Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, <clears throat> to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him is a phrase that gets used a lot in Paul's letters, but it's always refer it's all refers to Jesus. In Jesus, right? When you trust in Christ, you are in him. Like you walk inside a tent, right? As you graft uh, a vine into the branch, you are in Jesus. And in this passage in particular, Paul uses in him 11 times. So as much as we are talking about God the Father's abundant heart, we see where Paul turns his attention because the Father's heart is all about expressing who he is through the Son, through Jesus, right? And God would not express himself through anything less than, than the Son of God, right? God's not going to pick up some sort of, like, uh, creature and then say, look, he's just like me, and he's, he's going to be my representative. No, God the Son is the true and perfect representative of who God is, who revealed himself to be. And he, so he focuses his attention on him. says 11 times, in him, in Jesus, in who God has revealed himself in Jesus. He is the focus. And what does he draw our attention to as the focal point of what God has revealed himself, revealed about himself? In him, we have redemption through his blood. Which, just to be honest, just is such like a weird, just sounds like such a weird direction to take this, Right? You're talking about this great and glorious God who's created everything and he's happy and satisfied and he's eager to give and then let's draw our attention to the biggest loss in history, right? The moment in history where things were the worst, where his perfect son was slashed and nailed onto a cross and hung suspended between heaven and earth and died. The author of life died. That does not seem like something that you would put on your resume about the glory of God. But this is where God flips our expectations on their head. God points our attention here because it is in the cross of Christ that the glory of God is most clearly revealed. And this is one of the, the markers of why we have to think about this stuff as a trinity to make sense of it all because it is the trinity and the cross that brings us into happiness with God. See, the blood of his cross, that's talking about the atonement, where Jesus lays his life down in our place so that we do not receive the punishment of God 
for our many sins. They are laid on Jesus, and then all that Jesus deserved, we get. Jesus stood in our place. And this, this has always never made sense to the, to the non-believing, to our non-Christian friends, to ourselves, before the Spirit opens our eyes. Atheist Richard Dawkins refers to the atonement as vicious, pseudo-masochistic, and repellent. And then he asks this question, which maybe you've actually wondered, and I've wondered. If God wants to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them without having himself tortured and executed in payment? Right? And this is, this is why Paul is laying this out at the beginning. The gospel reveals the Trinity, and the gospel requires the Trinity, and the gospel will only make sense of how we know God Because what we see here is that God is holy. God is true and perfect, right? Everything that Paul has said up to this point, right? (laughs) Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ there in verse three. You know why God's happy? Because he's holy and he's never sinned. (laughs) He's perfect in every way. He's never done anything to be ashamed about. (laughs) He's God. He is good and perfect in every way and yet, He then draws our attention. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of whose trespasses? (laughs) Our trespasses. You see, the holiness of God is defended when sin is punished. You see that God's holiness must be vindicated. It must be shown to say, no, God is true and sin's not right. Because if you don't punish sin, you're just excusing it, right? You're just kind of like, wiping it under the divine mat of the universe and just saying like, well, it's not that big a deal that you just offended the happiest perfect being in the universe. <laughs> it's not a big deal. You just kind of wipe it under the rug. But that's not what God will do because eventually somebody's going to pull back the rug and it's going to come out. You see, God lets all of our sin out to be the air that Jesus breathes, to be the punishment that he dies for, so that God's heart to bless us is revealed in his son dying in our place. And just so you guys see, this is not some sort of like divine child abuse situation. What Paul says here is, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, right? Verse nine, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Right? What's, what's being referred to there is God the Father and God the Son agreed to this together. This is not something where Jesus was kind of like, you know what, I guess I'll do what you want. No, because Jesus has the same heart as the Father. <laughs> we are going to see these people that are broken and sinful, we're going to see them redeemed, and this is the way I'm going to redeem them. Father, I will go and I will die in their place so that the wrath that we should execute on them, I'll take it. I'll take it, and because I'm the son of God, I can fully absorb it, right? Only God could fully absorb and cancel out the infinite wrath of God. And so Jesus, the son of God, steps in our place and takes the infinite wrath of God so that we can then receive the infinite love and affection of the Father. You see, the, gro- the cross seems ridiculous in many ways, but it is at the heart of how we get to experience the, breath, the blessing and joy of the Trinity. I was reading an article um, recently, and um, this counselor was talking to a, um, he was, it was an article where a counselor was talking to a, a husband and the husband was complaining about his wife. And uh, here's, I just want to read this to you because I think, I think it draws us into how do we apply this? How do we live? How does this make us happy? Right? So the counselor says, uh, says to the husband who's complaining about his wife, you've described, described her deficiencies sincerely. 
Uh, tell me, what does, what does she do well? Where do you see God's grace at work in her life? God's grace? What does that have to do with anything? Haven't you heard me? She's making me miserable. Miserable. I deserve better than this. After a pause, I said, I want to help you, but first God wants you to put on thanksgiving. You should be grateful. The cross says that your marriage should be much worse. It says that you and her both deserve crucifixion. Compared to this, God has been gracious. Your, your wife loves you. Your children are ha- healthy. You have a good job. And God has given you saving faith. You should be jumping with joy. I know that she is not perfect, but in light of what you deserve, the glass is not half empty, it's half full. I deserve crucifixion, <laughs> he said. That means nothing to me. I don't understand what you mean. And he goes on to say, with the phrase, you deserve crucifixion, where do you get that? It's meaningless to me. You see, when we talk about the cross of Christ, we talk about being gospel-centered, we talk about what is the, how does the cross mean and what does it mean for our daily lives? When Paul says here, we have redemption through his blood, he is saying, you deserve to have been crucified. Our many sins against God, we deserve to have been crucified. And what have we received? Air to breathe? Jesus' people to come worship with? People who aren't killing us? Good things from God the Father? Not, I mean, I'm not saying that like, look, your job's the best. I'm just saying, God has given you more than you deserve. He's given me more than I deserve. Right? What we deserve is punishment for offending this holy God. And yet he has been the Father, lavishing infinite love upon us. The Son taking our place for all the wrath that we deserve. And so, not only do we have God's family smile upon us, and the, and the, and the Son's brotherly arm around us, we haven't, we haven't received what we deserve. So when anybody asks, how are you doing today? I mean, internally at least, better than I deserve. You know? I had a friend who did that once, and that was how he responded. It got a little annoying after a while. Like, hey, how are you doing today? Better than I deserve. It's like, okay, I get it. Like, you've said it like a thousand times, right? We do not get what we deserve, which is why we're happy, Right? I'm going to go to bed tonight. You're going to go to bed tonight having not received the wrath of God that you justly deserve. I don't know what's going to happen between now and when you go to bed, but it should at least put a smile on your face. (laughs) I get the infinite love of God. One of the ways I think that we can apply this is just to remind each other, and we do this at a small group on a regular basis, but you have been forgiven. The Son of God has taken the full wrath of God in your place. You've been forgiven. See, happiness comes when we get what we don't deserve, right? Like, do you ever, you ever get like a check in the mail? Like, hey, I wasn't expecting this. I didn't do anything for this. I mean, I'm not t- talking about your tax returns, right? Mm-hmm. I'm talking about something like you just weren't expecting. Like, I wasn't expecting hey, you know what? I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but you haven't gotten what you deserve. Can you tell that to me? Like, I just want to hear, Jesus has been good to me. He's been good to you. We don't get what we deserve. So the son's victorious sacrifice is that he conquers that which we deserve and gives us what we don't deserve. You guys tracking? We're down? All right, we're going to go close out here. We're going to pick up in verse 13. The Spirit's sealing presence. In Him, it says again, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His grace. So here again, right, we talked about saying, look, your salvation is not grounded in your prayer, your response to God, or anything like that. But here Paul says, in him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. 
your salvation was accomplished before you had any handle on it, right? It was accomplished before you had any word in it. You didn't say, I'd like to get on that ballot. Please cast that for me so I could get saved. You didn't elect Jesus so that then he went and stood in your place. It happened, and then you were told about it. <laughs> and when you were told about it, what happens, right? Do you see that? When you heard the word of truth, the word of truth, the gospel comes into my ear and believed in him, I respond internally and were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That believing and sealing are the same event at the same moment. It is written in such a way that when you believe, you are sealed. And when you're sealed, you believe. They happen at the same time. There's opposite sides of the same coin, right? It's like when a mom gives birth to a baby, she's given life to that baby, but the moment that baby's born, she's wrapping it in her arms and she loves it. She's She's got the baby. You got what I'm saying? There's life and there's sealing at the same moment, which means that when God saves you and gives you life, <laughs> he is sealing you to be his own forever. There's no, there's no question mark. There's no waiting period. There's no moment where you have to prove it and then you get baptized. You believe and God's got you, right? That's The picture is that God is giving all of this life and pouring all of this happiness and joy to save you, to redeem you out of the curse of our sin and death, and then he's got you for life. Now, if you're wondering, you know, what about people who deny the faith and all that stuff? We can talk about that another time, right? The point here is that people who are saved believe until the end. That might be a way of responding. Right? So there's two things about the ceiling that I want us to see real quick, and then we'll end. So in him, you have heard the word of truth, gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until. So you believe, and you're sealed now, until. So that means today until that day. What are we what are we sealed now for? I just want to read on the night before Jesus went to the cross, he actually speaks to this. He actually talks about the Holy Spirit being given to them. In John 14, Jesus says, "If you have loved me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper." This is the Holy Spirit to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, right? The, the spirit of truth who only gives you the truth of God, who only gives you true things about God, who only confirms and seals God's reality on your heart, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be with you. And then down in verse 23, Jesus continues, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So Jesus is giving this picture of, look, I'm, I'm dying and I'm going to rise from the grave and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, which Paul says is the promised Holy Spirit. This is what the whole Bible has been looking forward to. And Jesus himself says elsewhere, listen, it's good that I go away so that you get the Holy Spirit. You get the person of God, the, the third person of the Trinity to dwell in you and what does Jesus talk about it as being? It's a renovation project. <laughs> the Father and the Son. We're going to come and dwell with you. We're going to, the Puritans used to call the Holy Spirit the beautifier of the soul. The Holy Spirit moves into our souls. He moves into our hearts to start changing us around. Right? And it's not just kind of like some little, like, we're going to put a different rug in here. We're going to change the furniture. Right? That's kind of the way it starts. Right? We we trust in God and the Holy Spirit comes down and starts moving things around our lives and then he starts knocking down walls and adding on wings and adding on floors and expanding our souls to receive more and more of the love of God so that we no longer desire the sin that we so eagerly go to but the Holy Spirit begins to do demolition work on our souls. That's what the Holy Spirit's, one of the Spirit's works is. He is the sealing presence, which often is a bit, uh, is a bit maybe frustrating at times. God, why am I not changing? 
Why am I changing as fast as I'd like? Why is this not, why is my life in such a wreck? I'm a, Jesus, I thought I was a Christian and I feel like I'm worse off now than when I started. Like, what is the deal? That's often the way demolition work feels, isn't it? But the picture the New Testament gives us is that this is a daily, moment by moment, small changes, small changes. Because this reality that Jesus is saving us from, that the Trinity is saving us from, is so wretched and, and wrecked in our own lives. We, we don't understand how sin absolutely corrupts us. It, it, is be, it is beyond me to understand how sin works. But the Spirit comes and He seals us so that as we begin to see with the spiritual glasses that He gives us, we begin to see the sin in our lives and see our hearts for what they are, we have the confidence, not by anything less than God Himself, right? The Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity, you can't get any higher court than that, saying, You're forgiven. He loves you. He's with you. We're doing this. You're changing. Slowly by slowly by slowly, minute by minute. Right now, the Spirit dwells in you to change you until. Remember verse 14? The Spirit, Spirit seals us until. So here is God the Father absolute, abundant heart, sending his son, victorious sacrifice, the father and the son saying, we want to save them so that we will get the glory. So Jesus comes, dies in our place, and then he doesn't just kind of leave us to kind of figure it out. God, the Holy Spirit comes and seals us so that we are now functional children of God. We aren't just kind of like, we got the stamp on the wrist and then we get to walk in the house he's changing us to be like Jesus to walk like him and to live like him until verse 14 we acquire possession of it right the inheritance that God wants to give us you see the father says I want to give you everything Jesus says blessed are the meek for they will inherit the world right they'll inherit everything God seems to be an overly generous, overly exuberant, overly eager to give away type of father. <laughs> and so the spirit comes and seals us until we get to there, until we get everything. We got the power changing us on the inside now and then eventually he's gonna change everything on the outside. It must happen. The renewal and change of all things the disappointments will be washed away. All tears will be wiped away. All the scars and pains and disappointments of our lives, all the sins, all the effects of sin, all the things that are wrong and sinful and ugly and smelly about the world, all those things will be wiped away. And the way we know that will happen is that the Spirit seals us so that we have the sure hand of our Father supporting us until that day. And then, and then we'll see Jesus face to face. You see, our salvation is not, I prayed a prayer, and now God and I are in good terms. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is not, um, I think Jesus is a cool guy, and I'm going to come to church and hang out with people who like Jesus. You see, salvation is not, well, I, I give 10% of my money to the church, and so clearly I'm a Christian. No, salvation is the Father and Son and Holy Spirit on this colossal divine mission to save broken, sinful, wrecked people who can't do anything to help themselves <coughs> to make them a part of his family. And then the craziest thing, he comes and lives inside us until we get to his house and then we live with him forever. Right, so how is this practical? We have a happy God 
who happily saves us to be happy in him. I mean, happiness seems pretty practical to me. I'd like to be happy whether I'm, whether I'm taking the trash, cleaning a diaper, cleaning up after church, you know, getting the bumper ripped off my car. <laughs> I'd like to be happy in God no matter what. And this is what the Bible says. A happy God who happily saves you to be happy in him. Right? And, and I don't know if you picked up on this, but we've read the phrase to the praise of his glory three times in this phrase. This, phrase, this passage was written so that you can be happy in Jesus and tell people about it. Tell Jesus about it. So, what we're going to do is we're going to pray. We're going to take the Lord's Supper because God happily invites us to his table. And then we're going to sing about our happy God. Is that cool with you guys? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you have saved us in Jesus and that you are a happy God who happily saves us so that we can be happy in you. God, help us. Help us, Father. Help us to know your love for us. Give us your spirit so that we taste it and experience your love for us. Spirit, would you give us clearer sights of Jesus because he's been good to us and taken what we deserve so that now, God, we come to you and ask for what Jesus deserves, your infinite grace, and we receive it with confidence because you're a good father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.